0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 28. This is the last chapter in Matthew's gospel, but it is not the last chapter in Matthew's story. The arrangement suggests that Matthew understood the church as carrying on now the teaching and ministry of Jesus. We've mentioned throughout the podcast in this series, and you've no doubt noticed for yourself that in each of the five previous major sections in Matthew's gospel, there is a section of narrative followed by an extended teaching block, but not here. This concluding narrative is not followed by an extended block of teaching, which leads scholars to conclude that it is the church who will provide that teaching, that will carry on, as it were, the ministry and message of Jesus Christ. Thus, Matthew's gospel tells a story that never really ends. Jesus continues to work and to speak through his people. Thanks be to God. But we mustn't get too far ahead of ourselves. When we left the story at the end of chapter 27, the chief priests and Pharisees had asked permission to send a troop of temple guards to make the tomb of Jesus secure, lest his disciples come and steal the body away. We pick up the story now in verse 1 of chapter 28. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb to visit and likely also to complete the task of preparing the body of Jesus. Jesus. They may not have known about the guards as they were not posted until Saturday after the women had left. The early Christian practice of gathering for corporate worship early on Sunday morning, of course, traces back to the event of the resurrection. We Pick up the story at verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were See, I have told you. It is, of course, remarkable that the first witnesses to the empty tomb were women. It is remarkable because women were generally not credited as legal witnesses in Jewish culture. I think there are a couple of implications to that. First of all, it argues strongly in favor of the historicity of this account. No Jewish man would have said it this way unless it happened this way. You can easily imagine Matthew thinking in his heart as he wrote this, Lord, I'm not sure this was the best way to do it, but I'm writing it down because I want to be faithful to what actually happened. That's easy to imagine. That Matthew invented this detail is not easily imagined. So I think this detail argues strongly in favor of the historicity of the event as here described. Secondly, I think it it does have to influence our discussion about gender and ministry. Now, I think this event is wrongly recruited to oppose what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.12 and elsewhere in his letters. Because I believe in a single author, ultimately, for Holy Scripture, I don't believe that there would be any essential contradictions in the Bible. So I can't get on board with efforts to use this verse— to prove that Jesus wanted women to be pastors and and then that he was somehow unable to get that information across to dear brother Paul. No, I'm far more inclined to think of a way to harmonize these realities. And it doesn't seem very difficult to me anyway to do that. I think we would have to say here that Jesus clearly intended for women to function as evangelists in the church. He has clearly arranged for them to function thusly in this passage that we're reading. So that is as clear as the nose on your face, as far as I can see. Women can and should serve as evangelists, as gospelers, as people who tell and who speak about the victory of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I I think that is very clear. However, equally clear to me is the fact that a pastor or elder is is an office and teaching with authority in the gathered church is a function that is assigned in the New Testament to qualified men. I don't see this as a contradiction. I see it as aligning very well with the general pattern of Holy Scripture as a whole. The Bible seems to say consistently that men and women are equal but different. And it would seem that, therefore, it is no assault on the dignity or worth of a person to suggest that there may be some different roles and functions assigned according to gender. And the Apostle Paul apparently saw no contradiction here either. In 1 Timothy 2, he can say that the authoritative preachers in the gathered service should be men, but without any sense of awkwardness, he can acknowledge in 2 Timothy 1.5 that that Timothy was effectively evangelized by his mother and grandmother. So I think we do want to say loudly and with conviction that women can and should and and have often been the most common and powerfully used evangelists throughout the history of the church. However, we should stop short of using that as an argument for the dissolution of all differences and distinctions between the sexes in the home and in the church. We are still male and female in the image and likeness of God, and we should be, and all the more should we be, when we gather together as a church. Now, however necessary that is to say, in our present cultural moment, it has obviously taken us a fair bit away from the main flow of the narrative. The women have seen the empty tomb, and they've been told by the angel to go and proclaim that truth to others. We pick up the story in verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So again, let's just take note of the fact that the first people to encounter the risen Christ were also women. And we should likewise notice that the commission given by the angel is repeated and affirmed here by Jesus himself. Women were treated with enormous dignity by the Lord and accorded great worth and trusted with great responsibility. And if that's how Jesus treated them, then that's how they ought to be treated in the church of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests, Now, the Jews, of course, obviously understood that the empty tomb was a massive problem for them and a potentially massive propaganda tool for the early Christians from their perspective. It really does matter whether or not Jesus rose bodily from the dead. Leon Morris says here, that neither the Jews nor anybody else could produce the body of Jesus is of the utmost importance. Could this have been done? The story of the resurrection would have been exploded in a gale of laughter. But despite all their precautions, including the setting of a guard of soldiers, no body was ever produced. The empty tomb has always been important for Christians. Quote. Think about that. Why did the Jews not produce the body of Jesus? The simple answer is is that they did not possess the body of Jesus despite having put a guard around the tomb. So the best they could do is spread a story about some kind of reclamation mission pulled off by the disciples. But how are we to believe that the same ragtag group of cowards who abandoned him in the garden have now regrouped and somehow rediscovered their courage after the death of their leader? That doesn't make any sense. How would a group of mostly Teenaged and young adult fishermen overpower a group of professional guards and soldiers. How would that work exactly? And, and then why would they all die, many under cruel torture, for that lie? Again, that doesn't make any sense. What makes sense is the idea that Jesus was who he said he was, and he did what he said he would do. He rose physically, bodily, from the dead. Thanks be to God. Verse 16. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Once again, I suppose we're somewhat surprised that that this phenomenal event is going to take place in Galilee, but it is of a piece with what we have seen already in Matthew's gospel. It reminds us that the light is often given in the darkest places, and it anticipates the spread of the message of the king and his kingdom to every tribe, tongue, and nation on the earth it is it is right and fitting that the message of the kingdom should go forth first from galilee of the gentiles verse 17 and when they saw him they worshiped him but some doubted and jesus came and said to them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We should note, first of all, that authority in heaven and on earth has been given now already to Jesus Christ. R.T. France says helpfully here, This ingressive heirist has been given, thus indicates that the prophecy That the Son of Man would be enthroned as ruler of the world was fulfilled in the resurrection. That's very important for us to see. Jesus isn't in heaven waiting to rule. Jesus is in heaven reigning right now, ruling right now over all things for the good of His people and for the glory of His Father forever. Jesus reigns. Right now, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm not sure what else that could mean. And because he has all authority, therefore, he says, his disciples are to go and make disciples of all nations. France says again here, Jesus' universal lordship now demands a universal mission. Close quote. That's exactly right. And that's why these instructions are so different from the ones he gave his disciples back in Matthew chapter 10. Back there, he told them to go only to the 12 tribes of Israel. But here now, they're being sent to every person, every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet earth. Why? Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is Lord of all now, and that news needs to get out. There's only one imperative, one command in the Great Commission itself, though the Associated Participles likely also carry some imperative force. The main command is to make disciples. Followers of Christ will do this by going into all the nations and by baptizing people and teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. In terms of what it means to disciple someone or to make a disciple, John Broadus is very helpful here. He says, To disciple a person to Christ is to bring him into the relation of pupil to teacher, taking his yoke of authoritative instruction, accepting what he says as true because he says it, and submitting to his requirements as right because he makes them. This Great Commission is binding upon all of the followers of Jesus Christ, not just the original disciples who heard of that day. D.A. Carson is here, the aim of Jesus' disciples, therefore, is to make disciples of all men everywhere without distinction, quote. That's our aim. That's our ambition. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those over the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can keep checking in there, or you can also check in over at ca.thegospelcoalition.org over the course of the summer, as I intend to release a couple of excursus-type episodes reflecting a little deeper on some of the issues that have come up over the course of our walk through Matthew. God willing, I will begin releasing some new episodes from the Psalms in late August and of course, you can keep going with the RMM readings by accessing our series on the Gospel of Mark, which we did a while back, and that you can find over at the archive site www.intheword.ca. And as always, you can find us on Facebook and you can even find me on Twitter if you would like to do so. Just search for at Pastor Paul Carter, and you shouldn't have too much trouble. Until then, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Go in peace.